Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. And welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones. And for those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. One thing I would also like to mention is that we have copies of the book available for sale following the program right outside the doors. Now it is my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program, Jennifer Marshall. She is the Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity, and the Joseph C. and Elizabeth A. Anderlich uh, Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Jennifer. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for those of you who are joining us here and joining us online. We are delighted to be able to host Oz Guinness at the Heritage Foundation today. Oz, as you know, is a prolific writer and a perceptive commentator on uh, social trends today. And his own life experience has really given him ample occasion to observe cultures in the midst of change. Oz was born in China during World War II. His parents served there as medical missionaries. And after the tumultuous events of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, uh, his family, like other foreigners, had to leave in 1951. Oz pursued education in England. He studied and got his undergraduate degree from the University of London, his DPhil in social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. Since 1984, Oz has lived in the United States, and during that time he's been affiliated with various institutions, including the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, the Brookings Institution, the Trinity Forum, and the East-West Institute. Oz Guinness was the leading drafter of the Williamsburg Charter in 1988, a document celebrating the uniqueness of our First Amendment religious liberty protections. And that was on the occasion of the bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution. By the way, if you are wondering about his name association, you're on the right track. Oz is the great-great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer. Over the years, Oz has been a keen observer about the role of religious practice in contributing to a free society and a leading commentator on the significance of religious freedom for political freedom generally. Oz has written or edited more than 30 books, including The Call, Time for Truth, Unspeakable, A Free People's Suicide, and The Global Public Square. His latest book, and the one we are pleased to have him speak about here today, is called Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. In this most recent work, Oz argues that if we're to maintain this experiment in ordered liberty, we must consider and choose wisely the character and purpose of our freedom. 
Well, Oz's writing is enormously educational about the historical context from which our current situation has emerged, and Last Call for Liberty is no exception to that. Moreover, his lectures are a tour de force for synthesizing reflections drawn from deep scholarship. So you will be glad that you came today. Please join me in welcoming Oz Guinness. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you all. It's a tremendous privilege to be back at Heritage. It's often been said that there are times when history and human decisions come together at a single point and cast the die of a nation's fortunes. That's the way it was for Rome when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. That's certainly the way for us in England when Sir Francis Drake sailed out to face the Armada. And, of course, that was the way it was for you when the first shots were fired at Lexington and Concord. Others say, though, that it's the gathered consequences of a whole period that really shapes a nation far more profoundly. I'm not sure which side I would choose in today. But there's no question that looking at the United States and the American Republic as a foreign admirer and visitor, that America today is as deeply divided as at any time since just before the Civil War. But the question as I listen to much of the discussion around Washington and wider, what's the nature of that division? Some treat it just as a, another episode in left against right. Many have talked about the coastals in New York and California against the heartlanders in the so-called flyover territory. More recently, people have talked about the nationalists and the populists over against George Soros-style globalists. But my own way of seeing it is actually deeper than that. I would argue that if we look at the trends of movements and ideas throughout America in the last 50 years, what we're seeing is, on the one hand, those whose ideas of the republic and, above all, freedom go back to the American Revolution which was decisively, through the Reformation, biblical. And those whose ideas of the republic and of freedom go back, often unwittingly, to ideas that come from the French Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and its heirs such as Nietzsche, Gramsci, Marcuse, and more recent thinkers like Michel Foucault. And that, I think, is the deepest source of the divisions today. Now, that's important because those two revolutions are entirely different. We can look at the English Revolution, which in many ways failed, and the American Revolution, which was successful, so different from the French, the Russian, and the Chinese. And as Jennifer said, I was privileged as a boy to be there at the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. Now, it happens that this year, 2018, is a very significant year in the unfolding of the ideas that came from the French Revolution. Because it was in 68, which was a dramatic year in this country. But it was also in 1968 when Rudi Deutschke, the leader of the Red Brigade, called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, he was picking up on the idea of the Marxists that Karl Marx got it wrong. There wouldn't be a revolution a proletarian-style revolution in the streets. And as Gramsci had argued, sitting in jail under Mussolini, 
in his famous prison notebooks. Marx was wrong. To achieve a really successful revolution, one had to achieve cultural hegemony through the so-called gatekeepers. And the long march was that attempt. And you can see 50 years later how in the world of the colleges and universities, the press and media, and the world of entertainment, that actually the dominant ideas owe more to 1789 and its heirs than they do to 1776 and its heirs. Now, the problem is that unlike 1859, 1860, 1861, there has not been to this moment, as I see it, an Abraham Lincoln style of leadership who has addressed the evils in the light of what Lincoln called the better angel of the American nature, and above all, in the light of the Declaration of Independence. I was in Philadelphia a few weeks ago and moved again to read Lincoln's speeches at Independence Hall. How he summarized that all his thinking came from the documents that came out of that hall, and he ends finishing quoting Psalm 137. May my right hand forget its cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I'm unfaithful to the teaching that came from this great building. But more recently, while we've had many people addressing the issue, we haven't had people with the historical perspective of addressing the better angels in the light of today's challenges, but looking to the founding documents as the answer. And I would say, in the years I've been here, I've rarely heard many leaders with a deep sense of history addressing the contemporary issues. I grew up as a boy under Winston Churchill. And there was, I met him, too, as a teenager. But there was hardly a speech he gave that did not have a sense of perspective seasoned by history. Now, why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because my understanding of nations would follow St. Augustine's simple but profound idea. You don't judge a nation by the size of its population or the strength of its army and things like, as we would say today, the GNP and so on. Rather, you look at what it loves supremely. And is there any question that what America loves supremely is freedom? And yet that's precisely what's fundamentally at stake in what's essentially a clash between 1776 and 1789 over understandings of freedom and the republic. So I'm convinced that America is approaching its Rubicon moment. You remember that it was after Caesar crossed the Rubicon, that Cicero pronounced the Republic was over. And he was the first one to talk about Rhino, a Republic, not a Republican, but a Republic in name only. And from then onwards, it had gone. And you can see how in many areas today, American freedom, as the framers understood it, in many ways is profoundly under threat, whether it's free speech or religious freedom or whatever. And while people may pay lip service to the Constitution, this is a Rubicon moment when it's becoming less and less decisive in national life. Now, what my book does, or what I've tried to do in the book, is call for a national conversation on freedom. And the book is a checklist of 10 different questions 
I challenge as I move around the country, asking Americans to face and decide. How do you see the republic and how do you understand freedom? Because the two different revolutions come out incredibly differently in terms of their understanding of freedom. The first question I raise is, where did freedom come from? Used to be said that American freedom owed a lot to what Churchill called the ancient liberties of the English that flowed from, say, Magna Carta. But much of the traction of that went out in the 1960s with the reactions against waspishness. And of course, today, with the attacks on white privilege, even more so. Many of the polls show that Americans think freedom came from Athens. But as you know well at Heritage, Athenian democracy lasted essentially only 50 years, and the framers were extremely chary of Athenian democracy. And historically, it's a simple fact that American freedom owes far more than to Athens, it owes to Sinai. And the book of Exodus, through the Reformation, is in essence the master story of American freedom. And whether it's separation of powers or ordered liberty or the notion of constitutionalism coming out of the notion of covenantalism. America owes more to Exodus and the story of Exodus than it owes to Athens or any other particular source. And that is rich in implications for all sorts of things. For example, democracy has zero social content. But covenantalism, constitutionalism, is rich with social content, starting with the idea, love your neighbor as yourself, and all sorts of other implications. And that question, where does freedom come from, is something I think Americans need to re-explore. The second question, what do you mean by freedom? A rose is a rose is a rose, as Gertrude Stein said famously, but you can't say freedom is freedom is freedom. Because there are nuances to freedom and complications to freedom that make it much, much more challenging. Just to take one discussion, I had the privilege of being at Oxford with the great Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And you all know his famous distinction between negative freedom and positive freedom. Negative freedom, freedom from. Anyone under the control or coercion of anyone or anything outside themselves is not free. And freedom has to start with negative freedom. Whether it's a bully or a sexual aggressor or colonial power or something like drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Freedom always begins with negative freedom, freedom from. But as Berlin answers, that's only half of freedom. The other half of freedom is freedom for, positive freedom, freedom to be. And that, of course, requires truth, so that someone knows the truth of who they are and what they're supposed to be. And you can see the fundamental differences that flow out of that. As Lord Acton put it, is, is freedom the permission to do what you like, which is negative freedom run riot, or the power to do what you ought, which is positive freedom on the basis of negative freedom. And yet you can see that many Americans just treat freedom as a cliché, and many of the ideas come down from the French Revolution, ideas such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, man is 
born free, but everywhere is in chains, so throw off the repressions, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. And you can see how much American libertarianism, whether liberal or conservative, is actually closer to that than to the founder's much more nuanced and balanced idea of freedom. A third key question, do Americans face up to the paradox of freedom? Anyone who's visited the Korean War Memorial has probably pondered the words famously, freedom is not free. Brief, poignant, and inspiring. But many Americans have not gone on to look at the paradox of freedom. The simple fact that history shows us that the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Freedom often undermines itself and becomes permissiveness, license, anarchy, and then rebounds into the opposite, authoritarianism. Often freedom-loving people so love freedom, they'll surround themselves in wanting to be safe, secure, one nation under surveillance, and eventually they're not free. Or freedom-loving people so prize freedom that they'll do anything to fight for it, including things that contradict freedom. And you can go on down the line. In other words, there are all sorts of reasons, political, ethical, spiritual, why freedom becomes its own worst enemy. All freedom requires some restraint, what Edmund Burke calls putting a chain on our appetites. But of course, the only restraint really appropriate to freedom is self-restraint. And yet self-restraint is precisely what's undermined when freedom flourishes and people don't feel like being restrained, and so it goes. And the paradox of freedom works its way out. And that, for me, is the significance of the American experiment, that while freedom in its history is rare and fleeting, here is a country where freedom has been the longest public tutorial in the art of political freedom ever seen. And so for the present generation to treat it so carelessly and in many ways to squander it is of historic importance not only to Americans and their freedom, but to the entire world. Another question I raise often, how do we see freedom in the light of the exploding diversity of our time? Migration, travel, media, scholarship. In the social sciences, it's often said, everyone is now everywhere. And clearly, the deepest differences in this exploding diversity, this pluralization, the deepest differences are religious and ideological. Now, America's always had the understanding that the best way to handle that is through freedom of religion and conscience, once considered the first liberty. And certainly for many of the founders, civil liberty and religious liberty, the twin factors for where People came to this country and why they fought the American Revolution. And yet, sadly, the last 20 years, a bigger change in the understanding of religious freedom than in all America's previous 300 years put together. I call the factors the three dark R's. You have the so-called reducers who've taken religious freedom, James Madison's free exercise, 
or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this comprehensive right to adopt, to practice, to change, to share your faith, they've reduced it to freedom of worship. And even the previous president and the previous Secretary of State under him for a year and a half talked of religious freedom as freedom of worship. Now, of course, we know that every self-respecting dictator in history grants freedom of worship. Because what they mean is anything you believe between your two ears, as long as your mouth is firmly shut and you stay at home. But that is not free exercise. And you can see that reduction is an appalling caricature of the American understanding. The second R are the removers. And you can see those who have turned freedom of religion into freedom from religion, and many of them quite openly because of what they saw on 9-11. And you have new atheists such as Richard Dawkins, the Englishman, or Sam Harris, saying that when they saw the ugly face of religion in public, they wanted to remove it altogether. But the deepest challenge comes from the third R today, which I call the rebranders. So we see in American history, religious freedom, the first liberty. And yet today, it's now described as a code word for bigotry, for discrimination. And you can see it's under serious threat in all sorts of parts of the country because of that. And so in this area... We've seen a greater sea change, as I said, in the last 20 years than in the previous 300 together. And there hasn't been a country in history with an understanding and a practice of religious freedom like this one. So it would be of enormous significance if some of the present ideas inimical to religious freedom prove victorious. Another question, I'll finish with this one. Another question is very simply, where... Can freedom be grounded? Americans all talk about freedom almost as a cliche, but they don't ask, how do we know? Where do we ground? How do we philosophically justify the belief in human freedom? Now, anyone who knows, say, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jews stress freedom as a culture which uniquely held that view over against, say, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and later the Greeks. The Greeks certainly talked of freedom in a certain way, but behind everything was Moira, or fate. And none of the surrounding cultures in biblical times had any high view of freedom. People say, of course, we're different, we're modern. Surely atheists and others believe in it. Actually, if you study the thinking of secularists, Spinoza, Karl Marx, J.B. Watson, B.F. Skinner, Jacques Monod, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, you go on down the line. None of them has a belief in the grounding, or right down to people writing this year, like Yuval Harari, none of them have a grounding in a solid view of human freedom. Sam Harris's book, if you've read it, the front cover is of a puppet dangling on strings. And he argues quite openly that freedom is a fiction. Freedom is an illusion. And it's the simple fact today that anyone could argue that the only solid grounding for human freedom you find in the Bible, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. 
And you can see that it is Jews and Christians who today are the guardians and the champions of that high view of human freedom, and they need to be again because there are no other philosophies which give you that solid grounding for why humans can be taken seriously as people have freedom. Yes, we're influenced, but not. You can never close the circuit of influences and say that we are caused and we have no freedom. Now, if this is the Rubicon moment, what's to be done about it? Well, I think the central missing thing at the moment in America is leadership. Now, you hear leaders speaking out on all sorts of topics. But I don't hear people speaking out on the nature of the American Republic and the nature of freedom in the light of history, addressing the present challenges in the light of the better angels of the American experiment, which is why voices that have given up on the founders in many areas are much more dominant today. Leadership. As I said, in my 30-odd years in Washington, I've only heard two, I'm sure I've missed others, I've only heard two people on Capitol Hill who've addressed the present situation in the light of history, as say uh, Winston Churchill often did. It's the missing element, leadership. A second obvious thing that needs to be tackled is the restoration of civic education. I take seriously your American earlier motto, a pluribus unum. And as we look back in history, clearly that unum, the uniting first principles of the American experiment, was carried essentially by public schools. They weren't just free education. They were free universal education, which taught the American first principles. And that, of course, lay behind things like the melting pot and so on. But as we all know, with Horace Callan's multiculturalism in 1905, leading right down to many movements in the 1960s, civic education has disappeared from public schools. So say in the discussion of immigration, the talk of the wall or the talk of sanctuary cities and things like this, I've hardly anyone heard, heard anyone addressing the challenge of civic education. But obviously, every new child born in this country and every new immigrant who lands on these shores needs to know what it is to be an American, not just to have American citizenship. Without that, as Samuel Huntington often argued, immigration puts more of a stamp on the country than the revolution itself. And there needs to be a powerful new restoration of civic education. I believe if we move out beyond politics, there actually needs to be many other things, including a revival and reformation in many of the houses of faith. As I look at the Western world, this is the one country where, say, Christians are a huge majority and yet have less cultural influence than groups who are a fraction of their size. And followers of Jesus who are called to be salt and light and engaged in the world are today doing anything but. And there clearly needs to be a reformation and an awakening among the people of faith just to play their part with integrity and effectiveness. So put all these things together. I'm an admirer of this country, but sometimes I watch what's happening with sorrow 
and sometimes with anger at thinking how the greatness of your heritage can be squandered so fast and so carelessly. Because the American experiment in history is extraordinarily different. I'm not a believer in exceptionalism as such, because I think every great power in this time have claimed to be exceptional, and many of them have been in different ways, and the only real exception would be a great power which didn't claim to be exceptional in its time. But there's no question that there are certain things about freedom in this country which are unique. And to see the carelessness with which they're being eroded and with which they're being assaulted in this time, to me, is incredibly sad. So I would hope we would have leadership in the next year, two years, five years, ten years, there isn't long, which would address these issues and see a turning around in a solid way. Because I've always been moved, and that was behind the earlier title of an earlier book of mine, by that simple saying, but profound saying, of the 28-year-old Abraham Lincoln. As a nation of free men, either we will be free for all time or die by suicide. Free people who are strong are not brought down by outsiders, but by themselves, which, of course, is so profoundly unnecessary. Open it for anyone who wants to ask any questions. I'd wait for the roving mic to come around, and then, yes, sir. Uh, Gordon Johnson, I'm retired businessman. How do you how how do you uh, see the role of technology and its impact on freedom in the sense of uh, mm -hmm. the freedom of our privacy of our personal information? Uh, in a way, the more uh, widely we can share all our personal information, the better we can have health care, the better we can have lots of things, but also the better rulers can control what we're doing like the Chinese are doing with technology to build up social contracts so that people will who score well on their scores will do well if the government says so and if mm -hmm. they don't get travel if they don't score well. You can control people in different ways. The social ways. credit system. Mm -hmm. For me, the background question of that is, with all the advances since the founding of the American Republic and the way it was set up as a constitutional republic, can it handle all the advances, and you're mentioning the ones from technology? And obviously, they raise incredible questions. I don't think at the moment I've seen anything that cannot be answered within the framework of the republic as it was set up. Now, obviously, our current challenge is, say, from the social media. So if we look back simply at the expansion of the suffrage. So the time of the revolution, there were 3 million Americans. And they realized they couldn't have, like Athens, a direct democracy. So they went the English way with a representative democracy. But as the population grew, there's a big discussion in the 19th century, suffrage is expanded. The numbers are growing. You have to have education expanded equally to keep up with it, otherwise you won't have a citizenry wise enough to choose well the citizens they send to Washington, and so on. But clearly, more recently, we've seen, on the one hand, mediocre education, and the collapse of civic education, as I mentioned, and now 
the rise of the social media. So any of us knows there's a double problem. We ourselves, we talk of eating well, but do we have a digest of information that is eating knowledge well? That's incredibly hard today in the light of the media, from the newspapers out to you know, the blogs and so on. So that's a challenge in teaching the next generation how they can engage with the internet and all that and still take in information and think it through carefully so that when they make political debates and political votes and so on, it's wisely. And that's increasingly tough, I think, for any of us. For instance, I look at my son's generation, lives in New York. Many of them don't read books now. Everything they have comes from the internet. I think without books, you're cutting out from one of the essential sources of wisdom and a profound perspective you cannot get from best of browsing the internet. And then, of course, you add the other thing that you're mentioning, too. Through Google and other things, government can increasingly control us, and we've got to watch that very, very carefully. So you're right. That's one of the, the deepest challenges today through technology. Now, if we move from there, take, say, not just thinking, but our very being. If we look at transhumanism, you know, the 18th century humanism, God was dead, man was a measure of all things. Well, in the 60s, you had the first reaction to that was called anti-humanism. And they said, well, that picture of 18th century humanism was male, and so on. They, you remember the famous uh, diagram of Leonardo. It was a man, and he was handsome, and he was European, etc. And anti-humanism threw that out. And then you went further to what's called post-humanism, which wanted to see us not as exceptional as human beings as a species, but now one with the whole of nature. And that's, of course, continuing. But transhumanism takes that one further, which is humanity one with all the advances of technology. And when we look at uh, extension of life, cryonics, or we're looking at cyborgs, or robots, or artificial intelligence, or superintelligence, we're wrestling with things that no human beings have ever wrestled with before. And I would argue very simply here, we have to have a high view of human dignity. And yet for many of the transhumanists, you read the literature, that high view of human dignity, which historically, again, grounded in the scriptures, people are made in the image and likeness of God, that's the obstacle to much of what they want to do. Not the salvation of what they want to do, but the obstacle to it, and so on. So we're in incredible discussions. Think of the Chinese gene editing this week, whether or not it happened. You know, we're moving into that world where it's not just technology and our thinking, our information, but technology and our very being which is now called into question. And we need to keep abreast of all these debates. Great question. So, whenever the... Oh. Yes, uh, Carl Golovin, thank you. Uh, pardon me, I'm struggling with a bit of a cold here. Uh, you mentioned books. I want to ask you your perspective on an internationally renowned British journalist during the 1930s and 40s, uh, Douglas Reed, R-E-E-D. And he became... Uh, ostracized from journalism and, uh, well, was better able to finish his writings after the early 50s. He'd written a book about American history titled Far and Wide, and then uh, by 56, he had finished 
The Controversy of Zion, which remained unpublished till after his death in 1978. And his argument, I think, would be that uh, both the British experience in America have been co-opted, especially in the last 100, 150 years, by uh, Talmudic Zionism and political Zionist interests. And really that America was caused to digress from our um, initial insistence on not becoming entangled in European uh, controversies and wars. Instead, we've become a military tool that has been guided through World War I, World War II, and especially even the last 17 years in uh, protecting the uh, political interests, uh, Zionist interests of the Middle East. Uh, it hasn't um, Judaism really become Talmudism, which is opposed to the teachings of Christ? I haven't read Douglas Reed. I know, I know the name. I honestly haven't read it. I was a great friend of Malcolm Muggeridge, who was at the same time and knew him well. I haven't read that. I wouldn't see much of this to do with Zionism. In other words, the ideas I've been talking about, you can trace directly back to ideas that flow from the French Revolution and really have nothing to do with Zionism. So I think there are dangers in that. I mean, there are problems with Zionism today as it's become in certain areas. I personally, I come from a family. My great-grandfather was behind the Balfour Declaration and the attempt to restore a homeland to the Jewish people. So I think a, a, a genuine understanding of the restoration of Zion to the Jews, I'm personally strongly in favor of. And I know Zionism's become different things since then. But all the ideas I'm talking about actually flow from the French Revolution. Now, you're also hinting, though, any great power will have to be, in some ways, imperial. Now, the French Empire, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Portuguese, they were openly empires, and they called themselves empires. America was anti-imperial, particularly, say, under uh, FDR and so on. But the sheer power of America as the world's global superpower, means it's imperial by any other name. Not ideologically, but just de facto. And the same, of course, is rather true with China. China, historically, wasn't imperial in the way the European empires were. Incredibly powerful, but it wasn't imperial in that expansionary way. And yet modern China, clearly, trying to balance the United States, is becoming an, another empire by any other name. So I think there are impulses towards imperialism which are just there in the status of superpowers. But the things I'm talking about don't go back to Zionism, good or bad Zionism. They go back to ideas which you can trace very directly from the French Revolution. And that's why I would oppose them and get people to explore them and then challenge them, not, not to Zionism. Al Milliken, AM Media. Aside from uh, Judaism and Christianity, how do you view the other world major religions in relation to uh, liberty? They all have different views of liberty. I studied when I was in my 20s under a guru. I grew up in China, which was then largely Buddhist before communists took it over in power. Now, both Buddhism and Hinduism have a view of freedom, moksha in Sanskrit. But it's a very, very different idea of freedom. In other words, in the wheel with desire leading to craving, leading to attachment, you're bound to the wheel 
unless you can escape through right mindfulness for the Buddhists and you achieve nirvana, which is the great deathless lake of extinction. In other words, in both Hinduism and Buddhism, put rather too simply, freedom is freedom from individuality, not freedom to be an individual. Because when we take ourselves seriously as an individual, we're caught in the world of illusion. So for Hindus, just as the water flows into the sea, salt merges into water, and so on, so we lose our individuality going back to be one with the great ground of being. So yes, freedom, but an entirely different view of freedom from the Western view of freedom. Now, as I said, the Greeks, Eleuthera, or you think of Leonidas making his stand at Thermopylae for freedom. And yet you read all the Greeks, and behind freedom, behind even the gods, is fate. And you can see they didn't have an ultimate grounding for their freedom, although they strongly believed in freedom, and so on. So we can look at all the alternatives. Islam has never been known as powerful stands for freedom. I'm intrigued today to see. I was invited actually this week. I couldn't do it because I'm here. <laughs> here and some other places, but uh, invited to uh, Abu Dhabi, where a Moroccan sheikh is arguing to the Muslim groups the importance of freedom of conscience. That would be incredible for Islam if right across the board they were to accept freedom of religion and conscience. It would change much of the threat of Islam to modern society. In other words, they allow people to become Muslims, convert to Islam, but they don't yet allow people to convert from Islam, which, of course, is the logic of freedom of conscience both ways. If that were to succeed and things like it, it would make a tremendous difference. I, I've been in Egypt arguing for some of these things, and now you run up very quickly against very powerful resistance because the Islamic tradition doesn't have a high view of freedom for everyone. And you could go on down the line. Uh, Henry Hecker, retired government. I wondered the price of liberty and the Second Amendment. I wondered what your feelings are on this. We've had 500,000 dead since 2000. And every day we wake up and we hear more crimes, more disaster due to gun violence. Do you favor limitations on the Second Amendment? If so, what, what do you... What is your major concern on that? I'm not an American citizen, so I tend to address only things that are um, certain things, and I leave you to answer all the others. Let me just make one comment on that, something that's very rarely in the discussion. Whenever you have, uh, we're not talking about terrorism now, I'm talking about domestic massacres, the school shootings, and so on. Obviously, one constant in every incident is a gun or gun. But many people don't focus on the other constant, which is that almost every one of them is a loner. Now that actually says much more about where America is, and it is the people who use the guns. Now people don't comment on that. In other words, part of the problem in this country, and Senator Sass focuses on that much more in his new book, Them, is the unbonding of America, the ungluing of America, the unraveling of America, so that you have more and more people who are lonely and loners and disassociated, and that actually is the cause of so much of the, the real problem. 
Many years ago, I was uh, lecturing in Singapore and the, in an academic setting. And the academic respondent, because I live in America, he thought I was American, he said, this man wants to introduce us to the American way, we're interested in the Asian way. And he said, for instance, take the family. The American family is in chaos. Our Chinese family is strong. Well, my response was, not only I'm not American, but the American problem is not because America's America, it's because America is modern. And wherever you have modernity, you have this lack of social cohesion. And I said, when China goes the same way, you'll have problems there. And of course now, the Chinese government is bringing in experts from the West to deal with the family crisis. And it's not because China's becoming Western, it's because China's becoming super modern. And I think people need to focus on that, not just on gun law and the Second Amendment, but why is it that American society is producing so many lonely people? Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone and all of this, and therefore the rise of loners who do these things. And that's actually as much a constant in every massacre as the guns are, but almost never remarked on. I'll leave you to answer the gun one. Of public speakers we hear today from the White House, governors, key senators, articulate uh, members of Congress, or heads of school boards. <clears throat> Are we missing something? I don't hear them talk about the basic premises of the founding of our country, either the 1776 type or the French uh, revolution type of, of principles. Uh, are we missing something when we, when our speakers don't refer to where we come from, what the depths of our beliefs are, what we are willing to put our life down for? Thank you. Well, I believe you're right. Very rarely addressed the way that a Lincoln addressed it so well before. And a simple example, I'm not attacking him, but you just notice, say, that MAGA, Make America Great Again. The gentleman who says that never asks or states publicly what made America great in the first place. And it was not the military, and it was not the economy, important though both those things are. America is a nation by intention and by ideas. And if those ideas lose their compelling power, the country's in trouble. Now, when I hear the framers, it's usually something's unconstitutional. And that word's used a lot, but people don't explore what constitutional means and so on. You think of the attempt to remove the Electoral College now, get back to a 51% majoritarianism. Uh, in other words, people need to address today's problems. Immigration is a good example. It would be easy to address that in the light of first principles. And I think it would make much more sense to most people if that were done. Because often just to talk about the wall or whatever just sounds heartless rather than first principled and deeply American. So I agree with you. I don't think 
People are drinking enough. Whichever you gets the mics. <laughs> I just have three points. First of all, I commend you for uh, having such an elevated occupation, thinking about freedom by the time we leave. Thank you very much. Thank you. The second point is about uh, we have many interrogations, but I think you rightly pointed out the fact that we need, uh, the issue today is about human evolution. Everything is, has evolved except the human being himself. We have technology, we have development, but the human mind is not that developed to be able to handle the issue we, fi we face. So we should work on ourselves. And the, the third point, I just want you, if you have any comment, about the what if or what how, if uh, every human being have internalized the principle according to which my freedom stops where my freedoms, uh, or where the freedom of my neighbor starts. If everybody uh, have internalized his, this uh, maxim, how it works. Thank you. Boy, deep questions. Thank you. Take the second one first. At the heart, say, the biblical understanding of freedom is that God, as sovereign God, is free. But he actually limits himself. The Jews have a word, simsum. God's self-limitation is what gives us a certain freedom. And we're not totally controlled by God any more than we are by fate. He limits himself in respecting our freedom. Now, of course, then when you have a community, covenantal community, that means each person's right to freedom includes a self-limitation. My claim to my right for freedom includes the self-limitation. I respect your equal right to freedom. So a right for one is a right for another and a responsibility for both. And that's why we need to teach some of these things very simply today because people think their right to freedom just overrules anyone else. And in a postmodern world where there's no truth and everything's power, obviously that means the more powerful you are, the more freedom you have, and the less you think about those whose freedom you just ride over carefully. So we have to really teach the principles of freedom and one part of it is the self-government of the individual includes the self-limitation of the individual because each of us respects the right of other people to have the same right that we want. Now, your second question, if I understood it rightly, I may not have gone right to the heart of what you're saying, but today, if you look, I mentioned transhumanism. One of the features, you read all the books, is what you might call dissatisfaction with human existence. You can see it, say, bodily dissatisfactions. Transhumanists say, you know, you have the transgenders, so a man feels he should be in a woman's body or vice versa. But the transhumanists go way beyond that and say, it's not that I'm a man in a woman's body or vice versa, it's that I'm a human in a body when I want to be much, much more free through technological innovation. In other words, they always begin with that dissatisfaction with our human existence. Now, the question is, where does that lead you? Yes, there are things wrong with the world, and the biblical view is 
through creation we have greatness, but through sin and the fall, there's a certain broken ruinness to it. There's an ambivalence there, great but ruined. Whereas in the modern view, you overcome all the problems through technological innovation. Now, that usually means with a mind, you're getting to some supercomputer with algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves. But actually, the implications of that are totalitarian. And we become dependent on them in ways that I think are incredibly dangerous. And I think we've got to stress freedom and creativity and use the minds God has given us to work out some of these things, but without that fundamental dissatisfaction with human existence, which I think leads to solutions which are worse than the problem. But that's a great question. Hey, Warren, I'm an independent analyst. Uh, first, I'd like to make a book recommendation. You were talking about um, the inspiration for what we refer to as the founders uh, being rooted more in Jerusalem as opposed to Athens as the, as the uh, no, usual method. Jerusalem. I'm sorry? Sinai. Sinai, not Jerusalem. Sure. Um, a little different, but... But it brings to mind the work of uh, Professor Paul Eidelberg, who has a number of works that really deeply cover this. He, he would argue that it's that it is Jerusalem versus Athen, Athens, uh, in an intellectual sense. Uh, but I think you're on about the same thing, and, and would find that his work to be rather enlightening and, and, and rather interesting. Um, in the solutions portion of your discussion, uh, your first point was commenting about the lack of leadership and advocating for leadership rooted in the knowledge of and respect for history. And I wonder if this might not be a case of making a category error or a definition error similar to what you're suggesting is at the root of the problem uh, with the word liberty, which is that those of us who, uh, I would argue, have a tendency to agree with you that the 1776 model of liberty is uh, superior uh, in result uh, and in um, design, for lack of a better word, than the 1789 model, that our version of history is also different than the sort of proto-Marxist view of history, which tends to take the um, messianic millenarianism of Jewish and Christian sects, remove God from it, but re retain that sort of directionality to history that allows one to thoroughly ignore what much of the rest of us would argue is objective objectively happening and objectively has happened. I wonder if, is there a way that you see around that, that's, that also being a, a problem of disagreement and fundamental principle? Sorry, I didn't understand the last bit. What? So essentially, if, if there's a, a difference in definition between liberty, between the 1776 and 1789 models, as you've argued, and that there's also a difference that splits more or less along the same lines in how we view history. So the 1776 traditional model of yeah. history being what has happened as opposed to history being uh, a faith, a godless faith belief in what things will happen. Mm -hmm. how, how do we get around that issue? No, there are obviously certain styles of history that work to undermine any appreciation of the framers. So you take Charles Beard or Parrington or say Howard Zinn and his thinking behind much of the public school text today, that's a view of history in the earlier stuff, quasi-Marxist, which would undermine the framers totally. In other words, you've got three assaults on the framers. One assault is through their blind spots. 
In other words, they talked liberty, and you had the three-fifths law in the Constitution. And that what comes up in the 1960s. The second is the views of history, which come from people like Charles Beard, Parrington, and Zinn. And the third is the school of the progressives, often more condescending. The framers were brilliant in their time, but we're in different times. And you can see that in Woodrow Wilson. You can see it in Dean Acheson. You can see it in Barack Obama, that progressive school that we've now gone beyond the framers. But put those three together, and you've got a powerful intellectual rejection of the famous across the country. And that's disastrous. As we mentioned, Last Call for Liberty is for sale right outside this door. We're going to ask Oz to stay here because we expect that many of you will want him to sign your books, and this will be the easiest station at which to do that. We'll also be serving a light lunch as you exit the room. And please uh, tell all your friends about this uh, program, which will be archived as of tomorrow on heritage.org. And let's one more time thank Oz Guinness.